Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. It's Bullseye. My guest is Joel Kim Booster. Joel is a writer and comedian. He's written for Billy on the Street, Problematic with Moshe Kasher, and Netflix's Big Mouth. And as a stand-up, he's appeared on Conan, on Comedy Central, at Midnight, and more. These days, he's starring alongside Cal Penn in the upcoming NBC sitcom Sunnyside. He's also one of the most exciting new comics around. Why? Well, for one thing, there's his unique biography, which he works into his act. He's Korean-American. He was adopted and raised by a white family in suburban Illinois. His upbringing was conservative and extremely religious. He was homeschooled until he hit his teens. And as if that weren't hard enough, he came out at 17, moved out of his parents' house shortly after. There's also his stage persona, which is confident almost to a preposterous extent sometimes, and also sometimes vulnerable. He's not afraid to show flaws. And besides all those things... He really sincerely loves chain restaurants. He's that guy. Take a listen to this clip. It's off his debut album, Model Minority, which dropped last year. Joel is talking about one of his biggest pet peeves when white people try to guess his nationality. I do have to say, I actually, I I hate it when they guess correctly, though, because it's almost always worse for me. Because, like, for instance, I I waited tables uh, at the Olive Garden for two years in college. Hold for applause. Again, you know, when I have to ask for it, it means less. Um, No, I worked there for two years, and I will always remember this. I walked up to a table. It was, like, a table of three, like, older white guys. And I, you know, I introduced myself, and I got them their breadsticks. And then at one point, one of them just turns around and looks at me, and he's like, Hey, son, are you Korean? And I was like, yeah, I am. That's an amazing guess. Like, how did you know that? And he was like, well, I fought in the Korean War, so I know a thing or two about that. And I was like, oh. What does that mean for this relationship now? You know? <laughs> You've put me in an odd place. Uh, do you need a new server? Are you having a flashback? What is the situation? You know? wow. Joel Kim Booster, welcome to Bullseye. Thank you so much. I hate listening to myself. <laughs> This is going to be a long interview for me um, as we listen to these clips of bits that I now hate. um, Good news, JKB. We're recording this whole thing. (laughs) We're going to run it on the radio. Um, Thank you so much for having me. Of course. It's a a joy to have you on the show. So I didn't know before I heard this album that you were adopted. Yeah. Um, You grew up. In the Midwest, mm-hmm. where in the Midwest did you grow up? Uh, like right outside of Chicago, like 40 minutes outside of Chicago on the south end, so like the southwest suburbs. Um, Plainfield was the name of my town, uh, which s- sort of sandwiched in between Naperville and Joliet, which are cities that more people know about than Plainfield. What did you think of it when you were growing up there? I loved it growing up. I mean, I think it's an excellent place to leave. Um, uh, but it was sort of, I don't know, it was ideal for me in a lot of ways when I was really young um, it seemed I don't know it was the nice mix of like being close to a target but there's fields everywhere and cows and and, um, yeah I don't know I didn't really um, it's only really in hindsight and sort of as I got older that I realized um, that it was not my favorite place to be I think 
um, I had I had very l- narrow sort of expectations for a hometown when I was growing up, so it, it suited me fine. Were you self-aware about the fact that uh, you were Korean and everyone that surrounded you was white ethnically in the town that you lived in? Not until much later. I was much more aware, and like, full disclosure, this is like a bit, but I mean, I talk about knowing I was gay before knowing I was Asian, and that is something that is unfortunately very true, because we were homeschooled, um, I was homeschooled until I was 16, um, and it really wasn't until right before middle school or around middle school that I started to sort of be more aware of uh, the racial dynamics in my town. Um, But for me, like, you know, I was only at home. I I hung out with my brother and my sister and my family, and that was pretty much it. My parents didn't have adult friends that they hung out with. We didn't go to a traditional church um, until I was in middle school. So for me, it it just, in my mind, you know, (laughs) I was just like, this is just what families are. And this is what families look like. And I'm sure every family has uh, an Asian son <laughs> um, in some regard. I was much more preoccupied with the the gay stuff, I think. And being because I even from a really young age, um, you know, that was sort of blasted that this is wrong. You know, nobody ever said that it was wrong, that I was no one was ever sort of aggressively racist in, you know, uh, uh, any way or at least I wasn't exposed to it. Um, when I was a kid. So I never thought it was weird or wrong. I just sort of thought that's how it was. It was when I went, we went, my, my mom's side of the family is, is in the South. And, um, we went to a family reunion in Alabama in Birmingham when I was like seven or eight. And that was when I think it really hit me. Cause there are so many pictures of just like, n- you know, 70 people in a photograph and then me. And it is very clear <laughs> that, uh, I stick out. So I think that was probably when I started put putting two and two together. Did your parents homeschool you for religious or ideological reasons? Yeah. Um, They, my parents uh, were and are very evangelical um, and they were very, um, and and very right wing uh, evangelical too, in a way that like, um, I think they, they probably skew more like libertarian, but it's very distrustful of A, the state educating (laughs) your kids and be like not having control over the kinds of knowledge that are, is being transferred um, in public schools. They didn't want me learning about evolution. They didn't want me learning about sex. They didn't want me learning, you know, um, uh, they wanted to make sure that I was, you know, learning about history in a very specific point of view. And um, yeah, your older siblings are your parents, biological children. Yes. Um, did, was like part of your life an explanation of the situation? Was like there's something that your parents told you? Um, no. I mean, it, for for me, like growing up, it was just like a very matter of fact explanation of like you know some moms um, aren't ready and um, or can't and and this is why and you know and this happens and. And we are so blessed and lucky that, you know, we got to have you instead. I will say, you know, um, I have a lot of thoughts and feelings about adoption and and um, and sort of the way it's viewed in the world and stuff like that. But one thing my parents never did and never framed it as and would shut down very quickly when other people would say it is they never when they got like, well, aren't you a lucky boy um, for being adopted? And my parents would always be like, no, no. 
we're the lucky ones. Like this is not, and I hate it when people are like, oh, you're so lucky that you got rescued or like any time, any framing of that, like when I see interactions between like adopted kids and, and people out in the world, like that is the most infuriating thing I think for everybody. Cause nobody says that about babies, like biological children. Um, and it's the same concept. Like parenting is parenting. You are, you know, if you want a child, it's if you can't frame it as like I am doing a good thing by doing this way rather than having a biological kid. And I think like that's one thing my parents really did nail uh, growing up for all their faults is they never made me feel like I was a charity case or that there that they loved me any differently um, than my. Uh, or they wanted me any differently than my brother and my sister. It was always, you know, we are lucky that we were able to have you. Um, and I think that, I think, is is probably, I don't know, it is why I don't have a lot of angst about it today. Your parents' religion sounds like, at least from your album, like it was a little bit ad hoc. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> That's one way to put it. <laughs> well, I think yeah, in the album, you describe it as retrospectively maybe a cult. Yeah. But um, what was your experience of religion like when in your house when you were a kid? I mean, for us, it was mostly Sundays spent with my dad reading the Bible to us aloud and sort of having like in within our family discussions about it and um, just sort of the very sort of a black and white moralistic view of the world. Um, and for me, that just meant control. Like I felt really controlled in everything that I was consuming in, you know, media wise and what I was allowed to uh, watch and who I was allowed to hang out with and what I was allowed to read. It was really frustrating. I mean, I remember when I was like nine, my parents, um, they listened to every CD and read every book and comic book and everything like that, that and watched every show with us to make sure that it was okay. And I just remember them sitting me down because I wanted the Backstreet Boys CD and I was nine maybe. And they said that, um, you know, upon review, they could not let me get the CD because of the song where the lyrics are, no matter who you are, what you've done, where you've been, as long as you love me. And they sent me down a nine-year-old and were like, Joel, it does matter what a person has done. And it does matter who they are. Um, and if they don't have, you know, and it just, I was like, I'm nine. <laughs> I want to listen to the Backstreet Boys. Uh, how is, and so like, it was always things like, those situations always stick out to me. Um, because like, that's what I saw religion as for, until I probably, until I started going to a, a real, Cuckoo Bananas um, Evangelical Church of my own when I was in uh, middle school. That was, it was all sort of, uh, it, it was never like sort of Jesus focused, love focused in my house. It was rules focused. It was, you cannot do this because God does not approve of X, Y, or Z. Um, and so it was, it was just very frustrating. It was not primed for, <laughs> as something for me to enjoy uh, on my own. Do you believe in God now? Um, that's, oh, wow. Um, no, I don't. I think at best I'm an agnostic at this point. It's sort of hard to untangle yourself completely when you've been indoctrinated for, you know, half your life um, in this certain set of beliefs. And so it's really hard for me to, you know, say when you grow up looking at the world as sort of like created and there's a plan and, and there is like a, a another side, I think like that's probably the biggest sticking point for me is it's really hard for me to come to terms with the fact that I will die and that's it. 
you know, nobody can really wrap their head around it. But for me, um, it's always been easier to believe that I would rather believe that I will be chilling in a house as a ghost for eternity <laughs> than uh, not having anything um, once I'm in the ground. And maybe that makes me a child. I'm sure that there are people who are who, who believe that. I know that there are people. There are people in my life who believe that about me. But um, yeah, it's it's hard to sort of step away from it completely. I think. I mean, it's good to know that you'd be a chill ghost and not one of those like <laughs> chain rattling ghosts. No, no, no. I think I I I would be I would be fun. I would be um, like with a mimosa and yeah, everything. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. We'll wrap up my interview with Joel Kim Booster after a short break. He'll talk with me about the feedback, both good and bad, that he gets from other Asian Americans and how he deals with it. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Smart Water. Smart Water is for the curious drinkers, the ones who are always looking for ways to make things a little bit better. That's why Smart Water created two new ways to hydrate, Smart Water Alkaline with 9 plus pH and Smart Water Antioxidant with added selenium. And now you can order Smart Water by saying, Alexa, order Smart Water. Smart Water, that's pretty smart. When Bethany saw someone that looked a lot like her friend's boyfriend on the dating app Hinge... I was like, oh my God, did something happen? This week, NPR's Invisibilia dives into the tricky business of sorting the real from the fake. Unless you're able to discuss the semiotics of direwolves in Game of Thrones, Inside Pop is definitely not for you. Sean, that's a little extreme and also not quite true. Okay, Amita, how about Inside Pop is the podcast for people who love and appreciate the best pop culture has to offer? Much better. In every episode, we interview the people who create the culture you crave. Past interviews include Luke Cage showrunner Cheo Hadari Coker, the music supervisor of The Florida Project, and Mudbound director Dee Rees. You'll also get the very best pop culture recommendations in our Big Sell segment. Plus the opinions of two TV producers who are pop culture obsessives and actually do care a lot about direwolves. Which, of course, symbolize our inability to truly connect with the natural world without ultimately destroying it and in the process destroying ourselves. Listen to Inside Pop every other Wednesday on the Maximum Fun Podcast Network. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Joel Kim Booster, is a brilliant stand-up comic. He has appeared on Comedy Central, on Conan, a ton of other places. He has a great stand-up album, too, called Model Minority, and later this month, he'll star alongside Cal Penn in the new NBC series, Sunnyside. Let's get back into the interview. You worked as a writer for uh, Moshe Kasher's television show on Comedy Central. It was mm-hmm. like a talk show about um, about like a, a comic dialogue about hot issues. Yeah, the, the sources ethos of, of which cultural I, conflict. Right. Yeah. It was. It was sort of uh, the ethos. I think really was everybody is wrong a little bit, yeah. um, and so you would sort of we would look at issues through that way and sort of, you know, try and be like, I, I, I don't know that I could work on an uh, both sides, both sides sort of show anymore. <laughs> but um, back then in 2015, it felt very fresh. Um, when you started doing stand up, did you feel like you had to um, either be a club comic, an alternative comic or a gay comic? Mm, yeah. I mean, those last two are sort of one and the same in many people's eyes, I think. I, it's still funny to me because 
when especially when I was coming up in New York, you know, uh, people would call me an alt comic, which is so wild to me because I was doing basically like it's pretty standard. I was not pushing the form in any sort of way. You know, I'm I'm not like taking it and like reimagining it and then making it work um, for everybody. I was doing what John Mulaney and Tignataro and Aziz and everybody was doing at the time. It's just observations about my life and things that I've seen and things that have happened to me, you know, and writing a punchline around it. And so it was always very strange to me when people would be like, you're an alt comic because the things that I would be talking about would be eating you know, and it's like, <laughs> why, you know, it, the structure is the same. I, it's just the, the subject matter, I guess, is a little bit uh, out of left field. But I definitely felt that, especially... In um, Chicago, I think I, I, I felt the pressure to be, you know, when you're in a smaller city like that, I think there's definitely, you know, more accepted ways to be successful. And so, you know, it's like you got to do these mics and you have to do these shows and then you have to move on. And it's like a very set pattern. And then you move to a city like New York and suddenly there is no right way to do anything. Um, and it is sort of you uh, a choose your own adventure of like, well, what kind of career do you want to have? You can sort of cobble it together from any of these venues. And um, I don't know. I, I feel very lucky that it was a really freeing time to be a gay comic. Like there, I think there were moments in comedy, you know, even just a couple of years before I started eight years ago, where one person's success meant that that door was closed for the rest of us. It's sort of like a one in one out sort of situation. And now I, I don't know. I like so many of my closest friends are comedians and there is not even, there's like a natural sort of like competition that goes on that just is like running below the surface of any, you know, comedian's career. But for me, it's like, Oh, like when John early or Mateo lane or Bowen Yang or any of these other comedians, gay comedians are finding success. It just means like, there will be more for all of us now. And it's so nice to not have to worry about like anyone uh, like grabbing for the scraps from the table anymore because it does feel like things are changing and there's enough room for everybody at the table. Your comedy character, <laughs> particularly on uh, online, on Twitter, but also to some extent on stage, I think is probably dumber than you. Oh, absolutely, yeah. And like more romantically desperate. I think, yeah. Um, the My... <laughs> my brand on stage and online is hot idiot um <laughs> that's what i'm going for and if i can and i think it's a lot like um it you have to be a good singer to sing deliberately off key and i think you have to be smart to be um to play that dumb at well i want to play another clip from my guest joel kim booster's album model minority um uh, joel is talking about Gay guys who fetishize Asian men, which has a, a name in the gay community that I will allow you to say kindly, Joel. Rice Queen. Um, and this is the moment that uh, he realized he was on a date with one. We went back to his apartment and he was making me a drink in his kitchen. And I was just looking around his kitchen and I noticed he had like 14 Thai cookbooks. And I was like, oh no. <laughs> I see you now, you know? Like, I see who you are. And it was like a horror movie, you know, because suddenly I, like, I saw his entire apartment and there was just like rice patty hats everywhere and two, two katanas over the bed, you know? And it was very strange for me, but it got worse. Like, we, uh, in the middle of foreplay, like, I went there with him, I was like, all of this is fine. And in the middle of foreplay, he leans into my ear and I you not, he said to me, so you're gonna be my little geisha boy tonight? <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, it was bad, but you know what's worse is that I stayed. Um, I stayed. Oh God. I mean, what's telling to what's what's telling to me about that bit is that sure you're you're calling this guy out on stage, but you're ultimately questioning your own self of sense of self-worth yeah <laughs> I, I think there was a tag too that maybe i started doing either before or i don't know left but it was like yeah, i'm pretty sure that guy stopped texting me back uh, <laughs> too which is maybe the saddest part about that um but yeah it, it, it's so it feels like i mean a lot of this this was all that whole album is material that i've been you know working on for at that point six or seven years and so it's so weird to hear that stuff because it's changed so much for me now i mean I was writing jokes about myself and I and I was being you know sort of self-deprecating in a way to make myself more palatable for people. I, there is a special that delves deeply into this. Um, and for me, it just like wasn't helpful. And it's not how I really feel about myself now. And so there was like a shift, like right around the time I was recording that album, where I was like, oh, but like, this isn't, this isn't like my, this isn't being honest. Like, and this outlet for me is so refreshing because I, it feels like uh, I'm able to be as honest as I, as I can be. And that's like, for me as an artist, like, in, especially as a comedian, that's the question I always ask myself. Is this funny? Is this honest? And is this new? Or is this inter- is this interesting? And for, for me, a lot of those jokes now, when I listen back to them, they are still funny to me. And, and, and they are real in the sense of that that was what I was, that's the life that I had when I wrote them. But for me now, like to say that joke, it's just so weird because I'd, I'd have to really refigure it out for me now because... Um, I don't know. I wouldn't stay. Now, that's, I guess, the the bottom line is I wouldn't stay. Do you feel like you have to deal with the expectations of Asian American fans because you, you know, you share many experiences Mm -hmm. with other Asian Americans and Korean Americans? Certainly, you know what it feels like to walk into a room full of white dudes mm-hmm. and be the only Asian guy yeah. or whatever, for example. That is sort of the, our, yeah, everybody knows what that's like um, um, in our community. But like, I, I don't know, uh, you know, you never had the experience of bringing something to school for lunch that other people thought smelled no. weird or these yeah. other things. That um, My parents are white and I had that and, uh, you know, they are, have, their families have been here for however long and, you know, we had, uh, our traditions were very midwestern and and everything like that so there is a lot that i i feel a little boxed out of um experience wise and i think is uh uh sort of frustrating to to some people that see my success and are maybe frustrated that i don't represent that side of the asian american experience the sort of you know second third generation experience and i guess for me like i don't know i'm really fascinated by what is the the Asian American experience, like what is the culture that we have created for ourselves here that is sort of um, as a byproduct of be- of just exist- existing together as this race of people, not sort of as a, a culture from what we're bringing. I don't know. It's it's difficult. It's it's hard. And it's something that I'm sort of trying to figure out, like as I go on and I, I hear it 
I hear uh, I hear from a lot of Asian people who are who don't like me or my material, and I especially hear I think I especially hear from Asian men who are very frustrated with, like, oh, they put another you know a feminine Asian guy on TV. Of course they did. This is a the media conspiracy, uh, uh, conspiring against Asian men to emasculate all of us, and that's always a little hard to absorb. That I am the face of a media conspiracy <laughs> uh, to emasculate Asian men because I I don't know that I necessarily feel that way about myself. But um, you do talk in your album about how big your junk is. Yeah. Oh, yeah. To your credit. (laughs) Working against the conspiracy. I I don't know. I'm just like, and it's so weird. It is so weird to represent two minorities uh, in, and especially as like the the audience gets bigger and the the platforms get bigger, that the opportunities that are that I'm, you know, offered are, are getting bigger and bigger. It is a very stressful sort of, thought process I have to go through of like, am I being, you know, the right representation for a gay man and, and Asian men and Asian people and adoptees and, and this, that, and the other thing. And it's just, I, I really wish I could just really think about, is this funny and not have to um, worry about that other stuff. And I ultimately do, you know, um, but it's there and it's, you know, I do feel uh, some responsibility to, I don't know, make sure that everybody knows that this is my experience, my personal experience, my very specific experience. And I'm not trying to speak for either of these communities when I talk about, you know, any uh, any of the, you know, experiences that I talk about on stage. But it'll never change. I, I will always get the blowback no matter what. And I am, I don't know, I'm okay with it. You just sort of have to build that, you know, defense, the, the armor and let it wash off you i'm 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 literally i think i'm having a stroke as i'm saying these words <laughs> can you tell that like these sentences have no end there is no punctuation anymore i am literally about to have a stroke um i hope any of this is useful joel kim booster i'm so grateful to you for taking all this time yeah. to be on bullseye it was really I, great to get to talk me. to you again i hope anything i said made sense and is it makes me seem um smarter than i actually am Joel Kim Booster. His new TV show is called Sunnyside. It debuts Thursday, September 26th on NBC. Model Minority, his first stand-up album, is hilarious, and he also has a very funny part in Shrill, the Hulu comedy that stars A.D. Bryant. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Our show is produced at MaximumFun.org World Headquarters, overlooking MacArthur Park in beautiful Los Angeles, California, where some of the sections of the park have been roped off for, we think, grass planting, but it smells like fertilizer. So I don't know if those things go together. Uh, Some park visitors sitting on that area of the grass, ignoring the ropes. Most of those are pigeons, though. So they're not bothered by the smell. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. Jesus Ambrosio is our associate producer. We have help from Casey O'Brien here in the office. And our production fellow is Jordan Cowling. We are currently hiring another production fellow to work here with us in the office at Maximum Fun. If you want to apply, we would love to have your application. You can go to MaximumFun.org slash Production Fellow 2019. MaximumFun.org slash Production Fellow 2019. 
Our interstitial music is by DJW, also known as Dan Wally. Our thanks to Dan. Our theme song is Huddle Formation by The Go Team. Thanks to them and Memphis Industries for letting us use it. And before you go, did you know that Bullseye has been around for almost two decades? That means we have done hundreds and hundreds of interviews, not just with comics like Joel Kim Booster, but... Well, last week we had Jay Leno, we had Aparna Nancharla, one of the funniest, Maria Bamford, maybe the funniest, Bill Burr, he's got a new special, one of the best in the business. Hey, it's kind of our thing, now that I list them all out loud. You can check all of those out on our website at MaximumFun.org, or you can find them in your favorite podcast app. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Search for Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. You can keep up with the show in any of those places, and I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. 